All right, friends, turn with me to Colossians 4 if you're not there already. We're going to continue our series uh, that we've been on. If you're a guest with us, we've been taking the last a few months walking through the book of Colossians, verse by verse, uh, taking our time, but goodness, we could spend uh, years and years uh, in this letter. It's beautiful and awesome and good. Uh, but we're winding down. We're finally to the last uh, chapter, so we'll finish it up in the next three weeks or so. Uh, and going into uh, the summer and July, we'll be looking at a very brief survey of 1 Corinthians. And so if you want to uh, begin to kind of get your mind right, we're going to look at Paul addressing some issues that had arisen in the church at another church. We're looking at a church written uh, to in the church of Colossae. This is another church that Paul writes to, the church of Corinth. And they had had some divisions, some issues. And he'd gotten word of that. And he's writing letters back addressing these issues. And so we're going to look at some of those um, about four weeks or so. Uh, in, in July, leading into uh, August in, uh, in, in our fall series, uh, cranking up uh, in August. So we're excited, uh, but we're not finished with Colossians <clears throat> quite yet. So let's look in Colossians chapter 4. And so we've been looking chapter 3, uh, which has taken probably a month or so, just to break down chapter 3 for us. And it all hinges around that first verse, if you're risen with Christ. Um, probably a better translation of that would be, since you are risen with Christ. So... That's what it means to know Jesus. We've said it over and over again. But if, you, if you've forgotten or if you're here and you haven't heard us um, preaching our, our sermons on these things, uh, relationship with Jesus is about having new life in Jesus. It's not about being a better person. It's not about doing more religious things. It is about encountering the resurrected Christ and becoming changed from the inside out. And then when you experience the gospel at that level, everything is different. Everything is different. Nothing is now the same if you are in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you claim or would always have believed to have been in Christ, but yet you look at your life and there's no evidence whatsoever of any pursuit of the things of Christ. If it doesn't change the way, as we've seen here, the way you think, if it doesn't change the way that you see your sin, if it doesn't change the way you view the church, if it doesn't change the way that you view uh, marriage, if it doesn't change the way you view your work, then something might be missing in your understanding of the gospel. So I don't say that to say you're not saved, but I would say that this is eternity here that we're talking about. And in, in, in this area, I see so often, and I know this because this was my story. I grew up in and around the church in so many ways. Um, I believed a counterfeit, not because they told me a counterfeit. It was all about just kind of external stuff. And I even had great emotions and feelings about my relationship with God. But it wasn't true, genuine life change. The gospel I grew up hearing about hadn't really changed me. When you get understanding of Jesus, when you really repent of your sin and put faith in Christ, everything is different. And that is not to say that you no longer struggle with sin. Because my goodness, I struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. But is there progress? Do you love Jesus? Like, really love Him? You say, well, I don't love Him like I should. and None of us do. Or, do you hate your sin? You say, well, I mean, sometimes I sin and I'm not really... That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, are you making progress toward holiness? Do you want God? Not for what He can give you, but for who He is. And anything else might, no, not might be, is a counterfeit. The gospel is that we get Jesus, and when we get Jesus, everything changes in us. So all the do's that we must do and the don'ts of the Christianity, man, those still apply. It doesn't matter how we live. But listen, it's from a heart that is changed. It is from the acceptance of God that we obey and that we live. 
And that's what Paul's arguing for here. He said, look at Jesus, look who he is, look what he's done. And now, if you know him, you must see life differently. Not as an external command, but flowing from an internal transformation. So what we see today is that this new man, or this new heart that we have in the gospel, it will transform our speech. So he's going to give an example of a true follower of Christ and what it really means to follow Jesus. And for those of us who do know Jesus, what it means for us to increasingly submit to the lordship of Jesus. That one of the effects that following Jesus ought to have, that will have, is the way that we talk. And man, this is convicting for me. Because if you know me, I talk a lot. (laughs) So it's like, goodness, if I'm going to be held accountable for the way I speak, like, man. That's pretty, that's, that's scary for me. And let's just read, before we get to Colossians, I want to read three or four passages. I'm not going to, I'm going to resist the urge to preach them, okay? And we're just going to read them to set the stage for what uh, Paul's saying here. Um, first, our speech matters to God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Did you, did you hear that? That one day you will stand before Almighty Holy God and give an account for every careless word you've ever said. For by your words you you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. That's big words. Like what's Jesus saying here? That by your words you'll either be be declared righteous or by your words you will be condemned as unrighteous. I thought we were saved by grace. Like how does this mean? Like what's he saying here? Why does our speech matter so much to God? Well, Luke 6.45 gives us a clue. Jesus says again, our speech matters to God. Listen, here's why. Here's why your words will either justify you or condemn you. It's because your speech, what comes out of your mouth, reveals what's in your heart. It's less really about the words, and it's more about what it says about you as a person. So Luke 6, 45 says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, will produce good, and the evil person, out of, the evil of, his, out of his evil treasure, produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So you want to know what your heart is like? Look at how you talked, what you said, what you didn't say this week. It's a really good check engine line. It's a really good litmus test to see really where is your heart. What do you love? What do you hate? Are you really following Jesus? What's coming out of your mouth matters. Not because it's some arbitrary command that maybe your mom or your grandmama said, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap, boy. You know, because there's a way to talk and you ain't talking right. Like, I mean, that's definitely true. Maybe it'd do some good to get our soap mouth washed out with soap uh, every now and again. But at least it goes deeper. Why was grandmama right? Why does it matter what you say? Because it reveals who you are. It reveals who you are. Listen to what James has to say in James 3. The tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. So the words you say isn't just about the words you say. They're not just idle. They don't just kind of, oh, it's just a word. Like it matters. It says something about your whole self. Setting on fire the entire course of life. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. The words I speak (laughs) determine the trajectory of my life? And God's word, James would say, yeah. And it's set on fire by hell. Verse 8, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. You see what he said? Because of your sin, like you can't tame your tongue. You can't 
fix this problem. You say, well, why? Man, like, I know it's this big deal. Why can't I fix the problem? Well, Romans 3 will say why. And listen to, the, listen to the indictment of this. So many of us know this. You maybe went to a VBS way back when and learned these first couple of verses. But I want us to keep reading, though. Listen to what it says. None is righteous, no, not one. These are the ones we know, right? No one understands. No one seeks for God. All are turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Listen, that's describing every single one of us in this room. It's describing every single person in this world that this sin is pervasive. It affects us all. Self-righteous, irreligious, rebellious, this is the case. You're not good. (laughs) You don't love God. You don't seek after God. That's the nature of all of our hearts. That's the drift of our hearts. We've rebelled. But notice the the description of our rebellion. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Romans 3, what we grew up in understanding about your sin. He says, you want, to know, you want me to prove your sin? Look at how you talk. It's just an example. There's plenty of other ones, and he actually keeps going and describes other ones. But your words reveals what's in your heart. You say, okay, Derek, all right, we're sinners. We, most of us know that, but... Listen, and to follow Jesus means, remember what Romans 10 says? That you must confess with what? Your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. We use our mouth to reveal how much we're sinful. We should be using our mouth to praise God. That it is, Genesis says that God breathed into nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Like The breath that we have is from God. So all of us are breathing right now. You're not making yourself breathe. God is sustaining you. And He's given you breath. He's given you a voice for a purpose. It's to praise His name. And we praise God in other ways other than just our mouths. We've been talking about that. We praise God by the way we do our jobs. But listen, we praise God by the way that we speak. But we didn't use our voices and our souls and the breath of God to praise Him. We've turned it inward. We've used it for ourselves. And now our words are showing us the true condition of our hearts. But if we will use our words to confess and have a posture of heart that He's Lord and we repent and believe, now we can now be restored to use our mouths for the glory of God. We can truly let our mouths confess what we know to be true and believe to be true about God. So that's what Paul's coming to now in Colossians 3. What we're looking at in Colossians 3, I've broken it down uh, in three different things of the way that a new heart or a new transformed person we no longer use our mouths as an indictment against our sin and sinfully, but we can now have a transformation of speech to say the way that we talk, the words that we use, what does it look like? To let it be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and uh, being obedient uh, to Him. All right, well, this is not holistic by all, but we're going to let Colossians 4 uh, direct our time together uh, first. Here's the first reality of this. The new heart has conversations with God in all things. Do you want to know the posture of a heart that's been transformed? Is that you want to be with God. You want to talk to Him. And let's just not become so religious that this grows stale to us. Think about the reality and the beauty of that statement. Is that we, guilty sinners, have now access to be able to have a conversation with the God of heaven. That's amazing. You, you can talk to him. 
You use your mouth to like talk to God. You're looking at me like, Derek, we know this. But no, 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 that ought to floor us. So he, he breaks out and, and gives us instruction about prayer. We're not going to break down this verse very heavily because we spent five weeks back in January using this verse as a launching pad. So go back and listen to the podcast if you want to go a little deeper into our understanding of prayer. But I do want to pull out a few things that he says about these truths about prayer, that if a heart's transformed, uh, what's going to look like? So first, he says, you're going to pray persistently. He says, continue. Keep going. So our word earlier, endure in prayer. Um, all throughout the New Testament, Paul and others are writing, says, pray, pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying. And this idea of pray without ceasing is this idea of a God consciousness. Is that every moment of my life, I'm continuing in prayer. That my prayer is not just when we bow our heads, close our eyes, and get kind of weird and talk in our King James Version voice, you know, I beseech thee, Lord, and all that stuff. Like, not just that, but every area of life is a way to commune with God, to have a relationship with God. So when you're in an interaction with someone, or when crisis happens, or a frustrating circumstance comes, what Paul's saying here, if you have his new heart, if the gospel has changed you, if Jesus is your Lord, continue in prayer. Let your life be, to, be marked by a constant communion with God. Talk to Him. Driving down the road. Talk to Him when you're walking into a meeting. Talk to Him when your kid's being rebellious. Talk to Him when you get up in the morning. Listen, and you don't believe. Just talk. Talk to God. Like He's real, guys. God is a real person. You can have a relationship with Him. And as we read His Word, like these are the words of God. So as we pray God's words back to Him. We're literally continuing the conversation that God has already started in His Word. That He feels far off, but He doesn't have to be. He's not. Continue in prayer. Every moment is an opportunity for intimacy with God. Think about the, the, the reality of that statement. Every single moment is an opportunity for you to be with God. If you will be God conscious. Man, that changes things. But not just pray persistently, pray devotedly. So, all right, Paul, how do we continue in prayer? How do we have this life? He says, do it so devotedly. He says, continue steadfastly. Maybe your word says, be devoted to prayer. But different translations would say, be devoted. It's this idea that my life is set apart for the sake of being with God. Uh, the idea of steadfastly really is with strength. So in other words, he's saying, build up your spiritual muscles. Continue steadfastly. Don't grow weak in your praying. Be devoted. Be disciplined in your praying. Like, let your life be marked um, by this. So, um, here's, here's a reality. Put those two together. Here's what I want to say to us, and we're going to move on. A life of intimacy with God is birthed out of a life of a pursuit of God. So I think so many times that we don't see this continuing aspect of prayer. We're not praying without ceasing. We're not seeing every moment as an opportunity for intimacy with the creator of our souls and the lover of our souls. It's because we're not devoted and disciplined to pursue him. You see, yes, it's about a lifestyle of walking with Jesus and praying. You know, we call them the flare prayers, just praying all the time. That's true. But you're not going to be keen to that. And you're going to be really lazy and weak in that. Like it's like muscles that you never work out. They're not going to function properly if you're not devoted. So he says, yes, continue. Have this posture of God consciousness everywhere you go, but you're not going to do that if you're not steadfast, 
How do you get steadfast? You've got to be disciplined. You've got to work at it. So there's a space for the, the prayer closet of stealing away and having focused time to pray. I don't know what that looks like for you, but do you have that time? Because if you don't have that time, and you're not disciplined in praying and being intentional and focused and not just praying about whatever comes up, but pray about things that may not come to your mind and be intentional and pursue a relationship with God, then you're never going to be so keen to His presence to know Him and talk with Him. So what does that time look like for you? This is not legalism. This is intimacy with our God. Or do you have that devoted time? We set aside the first Saturday of every month now to pray, to get in this room and, and to pray. That's a good place to start. Come join us. If you have any questions about when and where, come out and see us at the Hub. We'll give you more information. Um, I, I tend to be, have to be very disciplined. On Mondays, I pray for certain things. On Tuesdays, I pray for certain things. On Wednesday, I pray for certain things. I have a prayer journal request. Somebody says, hey, pray for me. I write it down in my little journal. On Wednesdays, I do my intercessory prayers. On Mondays, I pray for my wife and my son. And Tuesdays, I pray for you. Thursdays, I pray for the nations. Like, I have got this plan. Because if I don't do that, I'm not going to be intentional. So what does it look like for you? That's not the only way to do it, but have a way. Be disciplined. So pray persistently, pray devotedly, but pray expectantly. He says, being watchful in it. We're being watchful in our praying. That word watchful literally is the idea of being to stay awake, to keep alive in our praying. Is to don't grow faint-hearted in your persistence. So he says, yeah, be devoted, but it matters how you're devoted. Don't lose heart in your devotedness. Pray expectantly. Like pray like you really are expecting God to answer you. I think so many times we have a reason we don't pray expectantly because we really don't believe that he wants to answer us. We think that he's a million miles away. But what would it look like to say, you are my father and you delight to give good gifts to me, your son or your daughter, and I'm going to keep asking. There's so many stories in the New Testament. Jesus says, hey, you know how you ought to pray? Pray like an annoying toddler. He doesn't say it quite like that. That's my translation of it. But he says, how does a, a toddler ask for something? Annoyingly, right? Like they keep asking they won't relent until they get whatever they're asking for he's hey when you pray pray like that keep asking keep seeking keep knocking because i delight to give and maybe just maybe i'm i'm delaying in my answer because i'm doing something in you so keep coming to me pester me he says pester me i delight to hear from you you're not a nuisance so pray eagerly, expecting God to move. When God answers your prayers, if you have the, you're writing your list down of prayers, go back every six weeks and say, how has God answered these prayers? And give Him praise for that. Be watchful in it, expecting Him to move. Because when God's people humble themselves to pray, is when God works. See, Derek explained that. I don't know how that works, but He's chosen to do it because He just wants to invite us into a relationship with Him. Invite us into what He's doing in the world. So what about you? Do you pray expectantly? Do you pray in a way with faith? God's listening and hears. I'm going to keep coming. So, but lastly, there's a balance to it. He says to pray thankfully. He says continue in it um, with thanksgiving. So in our persistent and our keep asking, it matters how we do it. We can't just become so arrogant and say, God, why aren't you giving me more stuff? Why aren't you working on my timetable? He said, no, no, no. Have this posture of, God, I trust you. And everything that I have is a gift from your hand. And if you choose to withhold something from me, it's because you're good. You're not withholding anything good from me. 
So if, you, if the answer is no, I trust you and I'm thankful. And when you do answer my prayer, because I'm being watchful, I see it, I'm going to thank you for it. And I'm not going to become so arrogant to think that I can run my life. I have a posture of thankfulness. It's trusting the heart of the giver and a contentedness with what God has already given us. So our attitude in praying ought to take the cue of a little child. Persistent pestering, but patient posturing. I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to continue. I'm not going to give up. Every area of life and in the, the prayer closets, locked away, being devoted and praying, even when I don't feel like it. And I'm going to do so eagerly and trust in God and expect it and keep asking. But I'm going to be thankful, patient, trusting my God. So that's what he says. The new man has a relationship with God. He talks to him. Your speech is now Godward. But listen, it's not just Godward, it's about being outward. So love God with all your heart, but also love your neighbor as yourself. And our speech is a way of doing that. So here's the second point. The new heart has conversations with unbelievers about God. So we have conversations with God. <laughs> but he, we will get up from that. And in the midst of that praying without ceasing, that we will now have use our words toward those who don't know the God that we know. If you're walking with God, if you know God, there's people, like Anthony was praying earlier, that do not know how to turn their eyes to Jesus. They don't know his character. They don't know his heart. Maybe they pray, but they don't even know who they're praying to. Or maybe they pray and they know God, but they seem like he's very distant, or they've got to do a bunch of stuff to appease him. There's all, so what does it look like to have conversations with unbelievers about God? Notice what Paul continues. So he's saying, this is what your prayer life should be marked by. But notice what he says in verse 3. At the same time. Okay. I'm going to give you a balance to make sure you don't get in a ditch over here. At the same time, pray also for us. Paul, when's the last time you asked someone to pray for you? That seems very selfish, but it's not selfish at all. It's actually selfish to say, I'm not going to let somebody in to say, hey, I need you to intercede before God on my account. I need you. You see, this is Paul, who's writing most of the New Testament, the apostle of Jesus, and he's going, I need you to pray for me. That's a beautiful way of what it means to be in the body and be in community is to pray for one another. So Paul's constantly, all the letters he's writing, he's writing, saying, hey, pray for me, pray for me. Because he believes in the power of prayer, but he also believes in the people of God. And he's letting people into his life. So let, let me just say to you, if you are not in a small community where you can experience this, and we call them life groups here, and a question we ask often, if not every time we gather in life group, is how can we pray for you? Like, man, if you're not in that, this church is going to feel really distant for you, he said, well, I don't know if anybody, who's going to pray for me? I mean, this church needs to go much, much from this bigness to something really small. And who are in your life that knows you and knows your fears and knows your struggles and that is begging and interceding with you before God? You need those people in your life. You need to be those types of people. So he says, pray for us. That was free. Uh, let's go. That God may open to us a door for the word. So here's what he's asking. He's going to give two requests here. There's two that's. It comes out of this. Here's the first one. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Here's the second one. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So look at Paul's prayer requests. And let's compare them to some of our prayer requests um, in our communities or this and just see if we're missing something that Paul got. All right. Um, 
First, prayer functions properly in the context of mission. You say, what in the world does that mean, Derek? Well, let's look what he says. Here's what he's asking for prayer. He's like, pray for me. Paul, how can I pray for you, bro? He says, that God may open to us a door for the word. Like, ask God to give me opportunities for the advancement of the gospel. Man, that is a different way of viewing prayer. So many times, I think so often, our prayer requests are just centered on ourselves. Our comforts, our problems. Well, let's make no mistake about it. We've already said that God cares about those things. And that should be part of our prayer request. But if it stops there, guys, listen, if it stops there, we're missing something. That what if prayer isn't just about us going before God with our wish list? What if prayer has a purpose? Yes, intimacy with God, but listen to to Pastor John Piper. This is in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And I love this quote. It'll be up on the screen. Listen to this. We cannot know what prayer is until we know that life is war. We're in a battle. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make prayer a domestic intercom. Listen to this. To call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Man. See what he says? So often we see prayer and it malfunctions when we just see prayer as God being our divine butler. Going before God, asking Him to bless us, to fix stuff. But the question is, why? It's not wrong to ask for those things, but why are you asking for those things? Is it just for your comfort? Or is it, say, God, do this, don't do this, fix this, so that your glory may be seen. So that your mission can advance. Because it's really less about us. And it's more about the kingdom of God expanding in the world. What if prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie rather than a domestic intercom calling for tea by our pool? And they say, God, we're out here in the battle. And we're asking for things, we're petitioning for things, and we're continuing steadfastly. Number one, because we don't have any other hope. (laughs) Like the battle is waging. But I don't think we have that urgency because we don't see life as war. We don't really realize that we're in a battle. Listen, not against our culture and not against all those heathens out there, wherever that might be. We're in a war against our own sin. We're in against a war for the souls of men and women. Life is a cosmic battle for, for our souls, for the souls of our neighbors, and for the souls of the nations. Life is at war. And we're not sufficient in ourselves to fight, church. Listen to me. You can't fight in your own strength. We can't do it. This is not some... Apply this principle and you can... No, no, this is much, much bigger than us. But when we pray... We are calling down the very powers of God. And when you pray for things, for the advancement of the mission of God, those are prayers that God will always answer. Because that is what prayer is for. Yes, intimacy with God. But listen, what God is doing in the world is He's reconciling people to Himself. He's on mission. He's drawing people. He's reconciling all things. And if you're a follower of Christ, you are invited into that mission. And prayer, yes, is about me and Jesus and knowing God and walking with God, but it's going to miss it. It's going to feel stale or you're gonna, it's going to malfunction if you aren't doing it in the context of mission. 
my wife and I were listening to a sermon on the way back from Louis Giglio, uh, pastor uh, Passion City Church in Atlanta, and man, he, some of these things, I'm like, I don't know, but man, this sermon is just on point. He's talking about loving people and living on mission, and both, we both finished the sermon. I was like, well, that stinks, you know, because it was so convicting. I was like, man, what are we going to do with ourselves now when we get home? Like, it was so good, but he talked about the two lungs of your life, of you have this lung of worshiping God and praise to God, but then you have this lung of mission to tell others about him. And if you are not, listen, living on mission, engaging God, engaging the world around you, God will always feel distant. You were wired for that. And Louis said, I think so many times the reason that we walk through life going, oh, something's missing. Oh, man, God just seems a million miles away. It's because he is among the least of these. That's where God is. God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is for those who do not know him to come to know him. And if you're not living your life engaging in what he cares about, that's what God loves. That's what God's doing. And if you're not doing that, if you're not on the front lines, you're missing it. You're going to miss it. And it's not this like, hey, you need to do more, try harder, get in the game, like because God's not going to love you if you don't. No, no, listen. This is, you're missing out if you don't. That this is what prayer is meant to be, is inviting you into what he's doing in the world. You know what he's doing in the world? It's very, very, very much not about us. <laughs> about our comforts, him meeting our needs. And it's more about us dying to our comforts and our needs so that he may be praised and enjoyed by all peoples of this earth. That is what he invites us into. So Paul's going to keep going here. He's going to unpack this. He's like, hey, pray for me that a door may be open for the word. So let's unpack what he's saying here. And what is it, what's some correlations for us? If we're going to not let prayer malfunction and let it be what it was intended to be, how are we going to do this? Well, here's some statements. We are not saviors, but we are stewards. He says that God may open a door for the word. So he's asking for God to literally open an opportunity. Some of your translations may say that. This idea of a door is an opportunity for the word to keep going. But he says, hey, God's going to have to do that. You can't do that. You don't bring the activity of God. That's the work of God. Salvation, if any lives are going to be changed, if darkness is going to be pushed back, if reconciliation is going to happen, it's going to be that God does it. So we are stewards, meaning he's doing this, but he's invited us to work with him. We are not the saviors. We don't fix this. But, so he says, we are not the saviors. Salvation is a work of God alone. But we are stewards. God has ordained, listen, us. To be the means by which he saves. So how's that work? It's a mystery. Like why God chooses to get his glory and his mission to advance through us, I'll never know. Because we're so bad at it. But he gets more glory from using clay pots with this treasure put in it to show how beautiful and good he is. So he says, hey, you are a steward of this gospel. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave that to you. You're invited into this service of seeing all things and all people reconciled to God. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. That's what he's doing. Not counting the trespasses against them. Notice, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. If you're here and you know Jesus, you claim to follow Christ, you realize this is true for you, that God has said, hey, I'm entrusting this message to you. 
It's like if I gave you like something precious, like my son, and said, hey, watch him for a month. Like, I hope you take that seriously. Okay, how much more is this true? Like, hey, this message this, that we sang about, this wondrous mystery. He says, because you know me, I'm giving it to you. Why? So I can enjoy a relationship with you, God? Yes and amen. That you can, I can find my joy in you? Yes. But so that you can give it away. He's given you this message. He's entrusted you're a steward of it, this gospel. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. It's who you are. Spurgeon said this, one is either a missionary or they are an imposter. And all God's people said, ouch, right? If you're not living on mission, you've got to ask, am I really following Jesus? Because he's on mission. That you are an ambassador. You are representing Christ. If you're in him, that's your identity. Notice what he says, God making his appeal through us. So when we open our mouths and we're entrusted with the gospel, when we speak the gospel, man, it's as if God is speaking to the world through us. And that is not to say we're arrogant, look at us, the church has the answer, everybody needs to listen to the church. And No, no, no. This is a humble calling. God is speaking through us to the lost as we are being obedient uh, to Him. So verse 3, he says, to declare the mystery of Christ. Here's what we're going to do. We're Praying for an open door for the word. Well, what's the word, Paul? He says, it's the mystery of Christ that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So living on mission is making the mystery clear. Those two things usually don't go together. But listen, first, the gospel is a mystery. It's a mystery. We just sang about it. But how can a loving, holy God love guilty, messed up sinners and still be just? It's a mystery. The whole Old Testament is asking that question. Like, how can God be merciful but yet still punish sin? One of the others to give. How does that happen? It's fulfilled in the cross of Christ where he punishes our iniquity by showing relentless love and grace toward us. It's the mystery of the gospel fulfilled in Jesus. But just think about, if we're going to live on mission, how ludicrous the message of the gospel sounds to people who don't know it. I mean, maybe you're here and you're an unbeliever. You go, yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty crazy that i got to believe in this guy named Jesus. i got to repent of my sins and put faith in him. And he rose from the dead. And now this Holy Ghost, like what in the world, comes lives inside of me? Like it's, it's folly, Paul says, to those who are perishing. It's a mystery. It doesn't make sense. St. Corinthians 4 says the reason that is is the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. They can't see a mystery it doesn't make sense and so this is what we're up against it's a mystery but he said i'm going to make it clear so pray for me guys that as i'm declaring this beautiful gospel to people that it doesn't make sense to they can't see it that they'd be able to see it and i want to do my job what's my job it's not to save them but if i want to be a good steward of the gospel it needs to be clear there's a lot of ways that we share the gospel that isn't clear first we're going to speak it so listen Living a good life is not enough. Like you must come to the place where you're speaking the gospel to the people in our lives that does not know it. The power of God for salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it's the only thing that works. But we want to preach a full gospel. We don't want to shirk about who God is and His holiness and His love and His grace and His mercy. We want to call sin, sin of what it is that it really does. It really is a rebellion against God. It's not just bad behavior. And it really does separate us from God. And we really are dead in our sins with no hope. 
That's true. And that Christ really did come. He really is the only way of reconciling to God. And he really did live for you and die in your place. And he really did rise from the dead. And he really does reign over all things and calls all people everywhere to repent, turn from sin and self, and trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. We have to preach the full gospel. And we have to weave it into everyday conversations and the whole gospel to the whole person. Like, we're not just trying to get people to pray a prayer or to make a decision or become religious or to be in the church. Like, that's not what we're after here. We're after true life change. We want people to understand the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, but the fullness of the beauty of who Jesus is, that he really is better. So is this true of you and us as a faith family? Like, do you... Are you robustly committed to say, I'm not a savior, I can't fix anybody, so I'm walking through life humbly, but I'm using my prayer, I'm praying desperately, and I'm going to be a steward of this gospel. That if this gospel is what we say it is, church, listen, how can we keep it to ourselves? You say, well, we have so many obstacles, people will reject me, and I'll lose the relationship, and I'll be misunderstood, or what if they say things that I don't know how to answer? And Listen, the costs are too great to let those fears keep us from being obedient. Because here's the last point. So he says, hey, have conversations with unbelievers about God. But then the new heart has conversations in ways that glorify God. I love what Paul says. Hey, talk to God. Have a relationship with Him. But make sure you don't use that for yourself. Let it be outward. The gospel is beautiful. It's, it ought to be clear because it's so good. So make it clear with your life. If you don't know what it is, study it. Come to our 930 study group where we're talking about the gospel. Right in the middle of it right now. Come next week, 9.30 in this green room. We're talking about what the gospel is. We're a few weeks into this. Learn the gospel. But then he says, hey, listen. Listen, this is so important. So we get up and say, okay, we're going to share the gospel. It matters how we share the gospel. We've all seen, I think so many times we're afraid of this. You've seen the street preachers, right? They're just screaming, turn or burn. God hates you, all this stuff. And we don't want to be that. We don't want to say, well, I mean, that's kind of what they believe. It's what I believe. He says, it matters the way, a manner of life that you are interacting with these people. So real quick, verses 5 and 6, we'll finish with this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So today he's going to step on all of our toes. There's some of us that are way too timid, and you've not shared the gospel, maybe in your life. You're ashamed to say the truth about God. And the gospel says, hey, get bold and live this life. But listen, for those of us who may be too bold, I think very few of us in our culture and this church are too bold. But listen, it matters how we say true things. So it's not just enough to speak truth. We must speak it humbly. And we must speak it with a Christian accent, meaning with the way that Jesus would say it. And he wouldn't say it in a way that's condescending, he says it in a way that's humble and gentle. doesn't shirk back from hard truth, but he does it out of love and humility. So I love what he says here, making the best use of time. So every moment is a moment of relationship with God. But listen, what if every moment, hang with me guys, focus. Every moment is a way to display the gospel of God, display Christ to the world. Every single moment. He's just making the best use of the time. Some of your translations may say redeeming the time. Buying it back. So think about this. Every single day, we are confronted with moments. Conversations here, conversations there. Person comes into your life. You see somebody sitting by themselves. You see a homeless guy on the street, whatever. 
what are you going to do? Spend it for yourself? Keep going? Or do you buy it? Make the best of it. In Ephesians, he says something very similar. He says, hey, pray for me that I may have boldness to declare the gospel, making the best use of the time. He adds, because the days are evil. Think about it like this. Let's think we're all in this big river, okay? And as Christians, we are swimming upstream. We now are different. We have a new life. We have a new perspective. But people who are apart from Christ are floating. So the natural progression of all of us is away from God. We read it in Romans 3. None of us seek after God. None of us are looking after God. And so everybody's coming down the current, just floating down the river. And as Christians, we're swimming upstream, pursuing the things of God. And what Paul is saying here is grab them. People are floating away, doing their natural thing, rejecting God, walking away from God. The days are evil, Paul says. He says, why do you make the best use of time? Because the days are evil. It's not just, people aren't going to naturally begin to seek after God. Listen, and you're not naturally, I'm not naturally going to leverage my life for this mission. What's natural is to drift to ourselves, to drift away from God. The days are evil. But he says, hey, make the Make the best use of time. Buy it back. When you buy something, there's a sacrifice to that. Give up this moment to engage this person. Every opportunity is a moment. Don't let them slip by. Time is urgent. Eternity is long. Intentionality today. But then he says, verse 3, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. So we're talking about these opportunities that Paul's talking about leveraging. He's writing this from a jail cell. I think so often we say, hey, I'm praying for an opportunity to share my faith, you know. I'm praying for an opportunity to finally get to the gospel conversation with this person. And Paul's going, I'm seeing prison as an opportunity to advance the gospel. So you put me in jail, great. I'm going to convert your jailers, and I have some scripture to write. Like that's Paul's kind of attitude. We said, we'll let you loose. Well, I'm just going to go preach the gospel everywhere. He said, well, we're going to kill you. He goes, well, to die is gain, you know. I get to be with Jesus. Like he has this constant posture. That everything that I, part of my life is to be with Jesus, to make much of Jesus. You see it that way. So what if even hardship and suffering and when things go wrong is an opportunity to put the glory of God on display? Paul's doing that here. So when we talk about praying for opportunities and seizing opportunities, it's not just somebody coming up randomly to us downtown and going, hey, can you tell me about Jesus and how to be saved? Like that's clearly an opportunity. But what if making most of these opportunities is to open the doors and to be intentional to seek them out and even the ones that may not look like opportunities are opportunities so last oh gosh real quick three points of application and i promise this is quick live in this world as citizens of heaven he says walk in wisdom toward outsiders first toward outsiders so walk let your life be toward unbelievers so listen do you know any lost people and we don't, if you're here, don't hear that in derogatory terms. Like people that don't believe in Jesus. Do you, are you friends with them? Are you engaging your neighbors? Are you living life in the real world and not isolated in a Christian subculture? Because he says toward outsiders. You can't be toward outsiders if you're not around any outsiders. People that aren't in Christ. So live in such a way intentionally around unbelievers. But then he says walk in wisdom. So it's not just enough to be in the world. We've got to be up against the world, for the world. Say we're going to be different. He says, walk in wisdom. So live as citizens of heaven. Like, we have a different lifestyle. So as we're loving unbelievers and walking toward outsiders, we do so in ways that are glorifying to God with lives that are transformed to believe what we say we believe. 
Then second, get the gospel in you as you seek to get the gospel out. Verse 6 says, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. There's a lot of different ways to translate this. Um, no one really knows what he's actually saying here, but here's a beautiful picture of this. Let your speech always be gracious. If you've experienced the grace of God, you ought to be able to extend the grace of God in the way you, the way you say things, but also what you say. And this is let it be seasoned with salt, that we are the salt of the earth, and the salt preserves, and it gives flavor and makes people thirsty for God. He says, live your life in a way that's provocative. Live your life in a radical way that makes people see as you're declaring this mystery of the gospel, don't be a hypocrite. If this gospel that you're advancing to people, do you believe it yourself? Has it changed you? Are you sharing from an authentic place? That doesn't mean a perfect place, but a place to go, no, no, no. I want to introduce you to Jesus because he's changed me. I'm not the same. And I'm going to show you this. But then the last is maybe one of the most important parts. See others as people, not projects. He says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Each person is individual. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of, you know, passing out tracts and all those things. I'm not against that necessarily. But he does say, hey, you should be so engaged with people that you know how to answer each individual person. To to interject with people's own doubts, their own questions, their own experiences, and showing the beauty of Christ into their lives. The question is, do we love people that way? Individuals. So don't just think about the lost and statistics as these big numbers of lostness and all these things. Like faces of real people that do not know our Jesus. So if you'll bow with me and close uh, your eyes, and the team's going to come up. Get ready to, to end our time together in a time of worship. But I want to read this quote over us. So please um, don't check out. L- listen to this as your heads are bowed. And let this be a conviction for all of us to say, gosh, we want to um, have this posture toward these each persons that God's called us into, that God loves so desperately. Listen to this quote by Charles Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, At least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let none go unwarned and unprayed for. Do you have that kind of gut-level burden for the people in your family, in this city, among all nations that have yet to even hear this good news, no access to this good news? Does your heart break over the people who do not know Jesus? Listen, church. This is not some, we're better, let's go save the world because we're awesome. Like, we were the outsiders, We were the ones without hope. We were the ones that had rejected God. And somebody told us the gospel. A preacher, you heard it somewhere, somebody shared it individually with you, and you responded, if you know Jesus, by repentance and faith. And God did a a miracle in raising your dead heart to life and to show grace to you. You did not deserve, I did not deserve his salvation. But somebody told us, and he was gracious. So this is not some, we're better, let's go save the world because we've got it figured out. This is a, we are the chief of sinners and we don't have it all together and we don't go to make a name for ourselves or try to build our church. We go believing that this is true. Like if they don't believe this, they're spending eternity apart from Christ under his wrath. 
But we have the hope and the glorious good news of his love and his mercy. So may it change us and may we see people as individuals and make the use of time and share it. We are stewards of the gospel. So maybe you just need to thank God for the gospel. Thank God that he saved you. Thank God that somebody told you. But what if he's empowered you by his spirit to say, now you go tell somebody else. Be bold with it. Don't be ashamed of my message. You are a steward. Join me in what I'm doing for the world. Pray, be with me, and out of that intimacy, live your life for what I love, what I'm doing. Let your speech reflect what you believe, what you know to be true. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, listen, the call to you is to not just get busy on mission, but first understand that's what he calls you into, to follow him, but he first calls you to himself. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, we invite you to Jesus. He took your place. He loves you. If you'll just repent of your sin, turn and trust. We'd love to talk to you about what that means, but don't leave here today without talking about that with us. We would love to have a conversation. Not pressure you in anything. Just have a conversation. If you have doubts, let's talk about those doubts. But this is important. This is eternity here. So all of us, um, let's stand now. And let's sing this song out um, before we leave and go to lunch. Um, It's your breath in our lungs. We pour out your praise back to you. So let's sing this together.